0: Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I am glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Father Manuel Williams. Father Manuel has served as Director of Resurrection Catholic Missions of the South and Pastor of Resurrection Catholic Church in Montgomery, Alabama since July of 1990. And Father Williams is a professor at the Institute of Black Catholic Studies at Xavier University in New Orleans, Louisiana. I think it was amazing to talk to Father Manuel for a number of reasons, his connection to Black Catholic spirituality and servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman. He personally knew her. All the stories he shares about Sister Thea and her wisdom and her impact are just engulfing, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Sister Thea Bowman is a tour de force. She died in 1990, but left a remarkable touch, mark, presence in the church in the United States, particularly in the Black Catholic community. Her part in creating Lead Me, Guide Me, the first African-American Catholic hymnal of its kind, her preaching, if you will, to the bishops at one of their bishops meetings in the United States is something that you just have to experience. And we'll put the links to that in the show notes. Just to know that this woman walked the earth not too long ago and the story she told it, even just her own life story, converting to Catholicism in the South is amazing. Father Manuel helps walk me through the questions of what is Black Catholic spirituality? What is Black spirituality? Some people seem to not believe there could be such a thing, that it's just spirituality. But no, there's something specific to the type of spirituality Black people, Black Catholics have. And Father Manuel talks about that, as well as talking about exactly what anti-racist preaching is. Could there be such a thing? Would it put you to sleep? I doubt it (laughs) if you heard Father Manuel preach it, but he talks about what that is, and I think it'll be quite surprising. So I can't wait for you to hear this discussion I have with Father Manuel Williams. It'll be up in just a moment. At America Media, we're committed to hosting real conversations at the intersection of the church and the world. We do it every day, online, in print, in podcasts, in videos. And you know what? We just released a new documentary on our YouTube channel that tells the story of an historic black Catholic parish in Cleveland, Ohio, that had to fight to stay open. And they fought amidst all these parish closures and clustering. And it's such a brief watch. You've got to go see this documentary to see how these black Catholics persevered in the faith, didn't give up, Despite the decision coming from Rome, they appealed it, but how they did it and the stories they could tell and their experience, I think, is really indicative of the kind of perseverance you see in the Black Catholic community. It's an enjoyable, brief watch. Go see it. The link is in the show notes. And this is the kind of content that America is producing every day. And the best way to support us, to support the Gloria Purpose podcast, is by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thank you. Stick around. My conversation with Father Manuel is up next. Father Manuel Williams, so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you. It's a privilege to be here.
0: You know, I'm excited whenever I get to talk to a fellow Southerner, another Black Catholic that grew up in the South like me, and also, you know, another Black Catholic Southerner, Sister Thea Bowman.
1: Indeed.
0: Okay. You have got to just, I just find it so, I don't know, just special when I meet someone that knows someone who actually is on the path to sainthood. And I don't know, it just feels like God's always reaching out to us through community, through relationships. Indeed. And I just think that's so special that you know a future saint. I'm already going to claim it. She's going to get canonized, okay?
1: I think so as well.
0: So just tell us a little bit or tell me a little bit about, you know, meeting Sister Thea, what your relationship was like, just all of that.
1: Okay. I graduated from University of Notre Dame in May of 1979. And I did not get accepted in the graduate medical and public health program that I was dying to matriculate in.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I came home to Montgomery and I had taken a minor in social work at the, with the courses, required courses over at St. Mary's College, which was our sister institution, the women's college across the road from Notre Dame.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I... um got hired to do direct aid social work back at the city of St. Jude. And one day in the fall, I think it was, I can't remember whether it was September or October, there were two Vincentian Sisters of Charity who staffed the social service center. And the director, Sister Gerard said to me, Emmanuel, there's this black nun who's going to be speaking at St. Beats, which is a neighboring parish to us. And she said, can you drive us over? Mm-hmm. And so I did. And Sister thea was doing a presentation in the school hall, the school auditorium. And we walked in the auditorium and there was this relatively tall nun. And she was not in religious habits. She didn't have a veil. She had what I would call a crown of braids, the meticulously braided hair that swept across her head and drooped just a little down over her face. She was in a caftan and if I remember correctly, It was a black one with this huge white stripe down the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And she strode that stage as good as any Broadway singer or actor could have. I mean, Mm. she just commanded it. And it was part preaching. It was part concert. It was part exhortation. It was part storytelling and folklore. And so afterwards, the sisters were just dying to meet her. And I, I was, too.
0: I bet. <laughs> yeah. And
1: so we stood in line, you know, with uh, 150 or 200 other people. And as we greeted her, Sister Gerard introduced herself and Sister Leona, the other sister. And then she introduced me. And she said, and Manuel here has just graduated from Notre Dame. And he wants to go to med school or public health school. But we think he should be a priest. <laughs> And so Sister Thea grabbed my hands and she looked me dead in the eyes and she said, oh, please. She said, I hope you'll do that. We need you. The church (sighs) needs you. And I looked at her and I said, well, sister, I'm thinking about it. She said, well, just please do it. Mm. I had a dynamic young resurrectionist pastor here at the church. I had been thinking about religious life and priesthood. And so over the course of the end of that year, by the fall of 1980, I had entered the Congregation of the Resurrections Formation Program at St. Louis University. That summer, after my first year in the uh, seminary, I was taking philosophy courses and some social work courses. I thought perhaps maybe I'd get an MSW in social work. But over the course of that year, it was a year of discernment to think if this is really what we want to do. And a year later, I was in the novitiate, And after leaving the novitiate, my first year of theology, Father Thaddeus Posey, a Capuchin, African-American Capuchin priest of happy memory, said, Manuel, you need to go to the Institute for Black Catholic Studies down at Xavier University in New Orleans, and I'll talk to your rector. And so talked to my rector, and he said, oh, sure, you know, whatever's going to help you to be a better priest and to be able to do ministry for Black people and other people, do it.
0: Oh, wow. So okay.
1: I walked into a class in the summer of probably June of 1982, or I think it was 82. And there was Sister Thea. Oh, wow. And incredibly, she remembered me.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. she said,
1: <laughs> yeah, and she said so you did it. And I said, yes, sister, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> and her class was spirituality of African-American literature. And mm. it was phenomenal. Sister was a master teacher. She was a master catechist. She sang with abandon. Yeah. Those of us who knew her fairly well used to say behind her back, sister sings <laughs> with exuberance, but pitch ain't always her friend. <laughs> But Y'all are wrong, but that's her. funny.
0: All right. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to share this anyway. <laughs> I'm going to give this gift anyway. That's right. That's right.
1: And mm-hmm. so that began a relationship where she served as teacher, professor, mentor, spiritual director, mother figure, right up until her death in March of 1990.
0: She just, everything I've heard about her, she just sounds like such a light. Like she just exuded this kind of joy and determination, I guess, is how I might describe it. And I mean, I'm sitting here, I have a lead me, guide me hymnal for African-American, you know, African-American hymnal, Mm -hmm. Catholic hymnal. Sister Thea was a part of that. I so wished that I had been able to see someone like that, you know, when she was alive. In
1: person. Yet yeah, in
0: person. I mean, wasn't that long ago that she died in 1990, no. but boy, am I sad I wasn't of the age to be able to travel and go see and even know about the great Sister Thea Bowman.
1: Yeah. St. Irenaeus, the African theologian, says the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Yes. Sister Thea was a human being fully alive.
0: So Father, you know, I have come across so many people, white Catholics in particular, who Take offense to the term Black Catholic, who take offense to the term Black Catholic spirituality or Black spirituality. Some see it as racist because it excludes, as they say, you know, you'd never say white spirituality or white Catholic. And so they are resistant to our specific naming of our experience, our identity, our way of worship because they don't think it's a real thing or are just resistant for whatever reason. How would you help people understand what you mean by Black Catholic spirituality, Black spirituality?
1: I try and very gently and respectfully say to people that the incarnation, Jesus becoming human person, that in that incarnation, every culture, every manifestation, Every expression of humanity is honored, is glorified, is affirmed. But saying that does not deny the reality that he was incarnated in a concrete place, in a concrete time, in a concrete culture. And so as wonderful as the incarnation is, that great gift of God to us for salvation, Mm -hmm. It also means that we have to acknowledge that that diversity of other cultures, the cultures where he was not incarnated in, also have a way of expressing the joy of salvation history. And so the reason you don't hear sometimes people label white spirituality as white spirituality, you'll hear them sometimes talk about a German school of mystics or Uh, French school of mystics or Spanish mysticism, you know, the great founder of the Society of Jesus. Ignatius is certainly very much influenced by his culture. And so, what we have to get people to understand then is that the gospel is lived in concrete situations, in cultures, in places where people will hear it from the idioms, in the language in the historical experiences that they have had. Mm -hmm. And so you don't hear white spirituality in the American church because it's assumed that it's white and it's assumed as the norm. And so it behooves us then to respect the idea that the culture, the gospel can be seen and lived and proclaimed through a particular cultural lens. And that does not mean that one is better than the other. It does not mean one is inferior to the other. It just means Mm -hmm. they're different. We have to acknowledge that the experience of Africanness that our ancestors brought to this country, the experience of the Middle Passage, the experience of enslavement, the experience of Jim Crow, the experience of the Great Migration, the experience now of voter suppression and renewed rancid racism, all of that affects the way I pray to my Jesus. All of that Mm -hmm. affects the way I look at my church. All of that affects the way that I listen to the scriptures. All of that affects the way I, as a presbyter preach the scriptures. And to deny that is nonsense because whether they'll admit it or not, the ones who object to saying Black spirituality or Native American spirituality, a woman in spirituality, they're operating from theirs. And it's usually Mm. just white men.
0: (laughs) That's a great way of putting it. Like, look, you're operating from yours. And it different from mine.
1: And you just assume it's normative for everybody else. Right. And that's exactly the message that Sister Thea gave in those months when she addressed the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops in that session at Seton Hall University in those months right before she died, where Mm. she said, I come to the church, I bring my whole self, my Mm. song, my dance, my poetry, my tales, my folklore, my hymns. And Mm -hmm. we make the mistake too often, Gloria, of thinking that the rich African-American musical tradition and prayer tradition is Protestant. Right. Well, it's not. It's African, but it was allowed the freedom and the space to develop in the Protestant denominations. Father Cyprian Davis, our beloved and esteemed historian of happy memory, used to say in class sometimes, uh, said at least once I heard him say it, in his history of Black Catholicism, which he taught at the Institute at Xavier, that if you really want to cry, sometimes read some of the letters that the Southern Catholic bishops wrote after emancipation, where they essentially just said, these Black sheep don't belong to us. We don't want Mm -hmm. them. And so Mm -hmm. to use the lack of the goodly numbers of expansive numbers of Black Catholics across this country as an excuse for not ministering to Black people, closing Black schools and institutions is a harbinger back to the original racism that kept us out of the church in the first place.
0: Yeah, it's true. And you know, speaking of racism, I know you've taught courses on anti-racist preaching, but before I go further into that question, I just to talk about terms, define what you mean by anti-racist. I have an idea of what it means, but there are so many people who are listening who may not even know what anti-racist means or know it as what we mean by anti-racist. I know there's a lot of political massaging of the term to make it something that isn't. So could you please just define what anti-racist means? Yeah,
1: it's based on the scholarship and the writing of Professor Ibram Kendi. And what he says, what Mm -hmm. Professor says is, it's not just enough to refrain from racist practices, language, behavior, Uh, cultivating racist institutions as part of being a just and humane person. What one has to do is also seek to destroy and to dismantle those systems of thought institutions that systemic racism. And so anti-racism is not just refraining from personal and institutional racism, it is being an active person in trying to dismantle it. Right. And that's the essential message of the Black Lives Matter movement. Shortly after George Floyd's death, I hung a banner on the front of our church that says Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And it did not take two days before people started either sending me letters or, in some cases, being even bold enough to come to my residence rectory door and knock and say, that doesn't belong there. Why did you have this on the church? All lives matter. Right. And after you know, trying to be as pastoral as possible, as compassionate as possible, remembering the lessons of Sister Thea and so many others who've gone before us to explain to them, in this country, white lives have always mattered. You don't have to assert that. But given what's happening with these extrajudicial killing, given what we know, here in Montgomery, we have the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, commonly called the lynching memorial. Yeah. Very few other our Native American sisters and brothers, and we are probably the only people who experience this kind of systemic, organized execution and slaughter of innocent people. And so that culture didn't just disappear with the passing of the civil rights legislation. And so it is part of, unfortunately, of our American character, our original sin in this country is enslavement of Africans and enslavement sometimes, you know, indentured servitude of other peoples, not, not necessarily right. African descent, but right. certainly we have been formed by that experience. And so after a while, I, you know, I just developed what I think is a very thoughtful and pastoral letter that I sent to the chancery because I know I was being reported to the archbishop and mm-hmm. said to them, just send folks this letter and you don't have to bother me, you know, with their complaints because the sign is going to stay on the front of the church because it is consistent with everything that we teach and believe as Catholic Christians, and it is utterly consistent with everything that we teach and believe in terms of the gospel of social justice.
0: Uh, Very true. Well, let me ask this, since I know you taught these anti-racist preaching courses at the Aquinas Institute of Theology in St. Louis, Missouri, I'm just going to jump right to it. How can a homily be intentionally anti-racist?
1: So very clearly, Anti racism preaching is not standing in front of any congregation, regardless of their ethnicity, and saying, Give up your filth. You're racist. You need to change the way that you vote. You need to change the way that you think. You need to change the way that you're acting towards in your individual relationships. That's not anti racist preaching. Anti racism preaching is to recognize that in the essential gospel message of Jesus, we are given a vision of humanity that is affirmative of all the diversity of humanity. Mm. There's a reason, thanks be to God, that the sacred author, Luke, recorded the Good Samaritan. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that the sacred author recorded the story of Naaman the Syrian. You know, when, when Jesus goes to his home synagogue and he preaches that sermon that's recorded in Luke chapter four. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release for captives, sight to the blind, walking to yes. the lame, of the year of God's favor. After he gives that marvelous oration, and all the people, you know, they're nasty. they're oh, they're impressed. Look at Miss Mary's boy. Didn't he speak well? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then he continues on, and he says, "What you've heard has been fulfilled in your hearing." Yes. And they object because they hear clearly is he saying he's the Messiah, is he the one that we're uh, that we've been looking for?
0: Right. And
1: it's that but we know you. We know your people. We knew your daddy Joseph. We we know your mama. Then he goes and he gives the illustration and he says, remember when there was leprosy throughout Israel, but not a leper in Israel was cured. It was Naaman the Syrian that the prophet said, go dip yourself 7 times in the river. And so the gospels And the Hebrew Testament are always pointing us towards universality, towards acceptance. You know, Israel's initial struggle was to see that the God of Abraham and Sarah was not just a God for the Hebrew people. Indeed, that God is the God of all creation. And that continues Mm. into the Christian Testament. And so, for us to be anti racist preachers, we have to accentuate a gospel of inclusion, not of tolerance. Of the human diversity, but appreciation of and elevation of that diversity and seeing that as a divine gift, as a divine gift. Someone told me the other day that about 60% or 70% of African American Catholics do not worship, and it might even be higher, do not worship in predominantly black congregations. So that means the vast majority of black Catholics are in multiracial or predominantly white congregations. And so what we want to do in promoting anti-racism preaching is to open eyes so that people will see in their sisters and brothers who are sitting in these pews around them, who they're seeing in the publics or the neighborhood Walmart and appreciate them as being created in the same image and likeness of God that they are. And then hopefully they will then act different and vote different and spend their money differently and do the one thing that I think Sister Thea and my friend Brian um, Stevenson would encourage all of us to do if we're going to build a beloved community is we have to get proximate. We have to mm-hmm. encounter people who are not like us.
0: And that being with other people, it's okay that they're different from you, yes. maybe different culturally, maybe the way in which maybe they clap their hands during mass or there's a drum or, you know what, it's it's okay. And you yeah. talked about inculturation earlier, because sometimes I'm seeing that people perceive different styles of worship, all faithful to the rubrics. By the way, let me just add. Yes, yes, as yes. somehow divisive, irreverent, and not Catholic. Yes. And I'm like, that's you know, that's not always the case.
1: Yeah, Sister Thea told a story one time when she went to Rome, and I guess the Franciscan sisters of perpetual adoration. Her order was primarily Eastern European women and recognizing the difference between the way that she'd seen black folks worship in rural Mississippi and not, she said, you know, at one point she said, I used to think that white Catholics were just stiff, you know, that they just couldn't get excited about anything. <laughs>
0: right.
1: And she said, but I went to Rome and in her typical bringing it down to a folkloric <laughs> level, she says, well, when I went to Rome and that little man came out on that balcony in that white suit with that little white hat on his head, and we <laughs> all knew she was talking about the Pope, right. and he stepped, she said, I saw people jumping and acting a plum fool from all <laughs> over the world. They were knocking each other over, just screaming, Viva la papa, papa. and she said, they got excited. She right. said, now, why is it okay to do that in St. Peter's Square? You know, they're in front of the papal palace. But for me not to get excited about Jesus in St. Right. Boniface Church or St. Martin de Porres church. Good point, huh? Eh? Yeah. And so it's a, <laughs> it's a gift of our spirituality.
0: We'll be back in a minute. Now you talked about that for the experience of Black Catholics, they're mostly in either predominantly white parish or ethnically racially diverse parishes. I want to focus on those who might be in parishes that are predominantly white because I have tended over the last couple years or so to talk with these people and for some, encourage them to stay in the church because of the alienation they feel, Mm -hmm. have felt since the rise of Black Lives Matter movement, talking about George Floyd, what happened to George Floyd, their experience in their particular parishes have been moments of sadness and rage, betrayal.
1: Alienation, anger, yes.
0: Yes, yeah. So, you know, how do we talk to those brothers and sisters of ours who aren't in a welcoming community, who aren't in a community that's culturally connected to Black Catholics? Wow.
1: That is a real challenge. Yeah. I think one of the things we have to say to them is I know the experience of African-American Catholics who have worshiped in or became Catholic in predominantly African-American communities and did not receive the kind of spiritual feeding, shall we say, preaching and music that helped them, but they did receive the Eucharist. And it was the Eucharist that kept them rooted in their Catholicism. My own mother used to come home from our 7.30 mass here And the priests in my parish were all resurrectionist priests. And for my childhood, most of them were older men who were either first or second generation Americans. And they gave us what they had. They did the best of what they could do. But to say that the liturgy and their preaching was culturally appropriate or sensitive or enlightened, no, it was not. And so Mama would come home after we'd attend Mass and receive communion. And then she'd put on her Mahalia Jackson albums. And (laughs) and she'd get... What she didn't get in word and music in the church, she got from her Philco or big old-fashioned record players. And so I would encourage folks to seek those kinds of media now that will help you to sustain your faith. Maybe it will mean in some of these communities, if there is a vibrant, faith-inspiring and nurturing parish community within a drive of you for however many hours, then go Mm -hmm. there. If you can only get there once a quarter or once a month. But COVID has taught us as so many of our parishes and my parish here in particular, we went almost a year and four or five months without in-person liturgy because the virus was so rampant in our community with the vaccine resistance. And so we developed a digital ministry that I think we will have to continue even, please God, when we get past this COVID and all its variants. And so- Mm -hmm. There's vehicles now where you can worship with people at St. Charles Borromeo in New York City, where you can worship with people at St. Peter Claver in New Orleans, where you can worship with people at Resurrection in Montgomery, where you can worship with people at Transfiguration in Los Angeles. And so find those communities and use the technology that will allow you to do it. The other thing is, I think we need to be more assertive and self-defining. And so Mm -hmm. If there are ten or fifteen of y'all in a parish, ten or fifteen families or ten or fifteen individuals in a parish where there are fifteen hundred other people and families not like you, right, for God's sake, get together.
0: Right. Do a scripture study. Yeah.
1: Have your own you're not not being Catholic, you know, because we're having our little community of faith. Community that is the by We're having our own to keep us nurtured and enriched in our discipleship.
0: What advice would you give predominantly white parishes to make themselves more welcoming and culturally connected to Black Catholics?
1: I encourage, and this is what we do in the um, courses that I've sometimes taught or team taught at the Institute for Black Catholic Studies at Xavier, is to encourage our non-African American ministers. And sometimes these will be Africans of the diaspora, sometimes there will be white American pastors and religious women or leaders or whatever, is to familiarize yourself with some of the tradition that we have. There was a very beloved white priest of the Belleville Diocese who was a great friend of Sister Thea's and several others of us who went through the Institute in those early years. And his name was Father Jim Velker. Mm -hmm. And Velker, tall, thin, as white as white can be, said, I went to the Black preachers in East St. Louis in my neighborhood and said, help me learn how to preach. <laughs> help me learn how to preach. I, said, I, want to, I want to be a good pastor to my people. Help me learn how to preach in a way that they will receive it and be nourished by it. Well, not every non-African-American religious pastoral leader is going to have that kind of humility or that kind of energy or right. you know initiative to do that. But you can read some of the wonderful things. You can watch and listen to some of the wonderful things. You know, I would not ordain a Catholic priest or deacon in this country without having them look at Sister Thea's address to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a great one.
1: Yeah, because there you have an expansive and inclusive ecclesiology of what it means to be a Catholic Christian that again situated most definitely in the african-american context but it could work for immigrants from haiti it could work for our hispanic and latino and latina ex communities it could work for our asian-american because it's a notion of church that says we're all welcome at the table and we bring yes. our whole selves our whole culture our whole history to that table
0: amen that is beautiful that's a a word, if you say that, that's yeah, plenty that's for word. people I think to chew on. <laughs> well, Father, you know, I have thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with you. I love the stories you're telling about Sister Thea. I love the way you yourself have preached to us during this podcast. And I am especially grateful that you were able to help people understand what anti-racist preaching is what diversity and inclusion could be in parishes, and how those of us who are black Catholics and feeling alienated in the parishes that we are in have a way to create community and keep ourselves tethered to the church.
1: The church, amen.
0: So I wanna thank you so much for all of that.
1: Bless you and thank you for the work that you do, Gloria, in advancing the good news in our community and beyond.
0: Glory to God, thank you so much, Father. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or a family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Could you leave us a review? I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at i am gloria purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.